Got a question for you this morning. How many of you are good, and by good I mean do, good at writing thank you notes? Okay, a few people. All right. I am not. I am not. And, and the thing that annoys me is that I can't, even to this day, my, my mother continually reminds me, did you write a thank you note? Did you tell you thank you? I'm like, Mom, I said thank you verbally. Isn't that enough? But no, you have to write a thank you note. And that's a good thing, okay? Thank you notes are a good thing. I'm not, not decrying thank you notes. Maybe you're great at them. We saw a few hands go up. You're very good at writing thank you notes and perhaps use flowery language and just are just so expressive in your thank you notes. And God bless you, you're great. Uh, I am not the one, and I need to work on it sometimes. I, a thank you note is appropriate. And it's something that I need to work on, right? We all know that thank you notes are a part of life, aren't they? they whether you get a gift or someone sends you some flowers, you're supposed to write a thank you, you're supposed to say thank you. Well, here in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, we have a reason for saying thank you. In fact, we have several of them. And while God is more than capable to give gifts and and doesn't need our thanks, still it is incumbent upon us to thank Him. And this is not for a gift that God has given us per se, or perhaps in something he has done for us, but it's, it's for a person. You know, when we write thank you notes, we normally thank, them, thank uh, people for giving us something, you know, whether it be a gift, money, whatever it might be, but we rarely thank people for a person. And so here in the book of Hebrews, I think we have a thank you note to write to God. And so I challenge you this morning to give thanks to God for his son. Give thanks to God for his son. Now, now some of you say, Pastor, I, we, we do that all the time, and, and I know that. I realize that. We do it in our singing. We do it in our, in our time of communion. But I want us to focus intently this morning on giving thanks to God. And I want to give you four reasons why we need to do that. Four reasons for giving thanks to God. Number one, Jesus is God's ultimate revelation. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. You notice here that God is the author of this revelation. God initiated it, God planned it, and God carried it out. No one else could have done this. Yet, just like we saw back in Ephesians, when we're studying in Ephesians chapter 1, God carried this out. It's all about Him. The Son and the Father designed the ultimate revelation and carried it out. And I would submit to you this morning, is that not more than sufficient reason to praise the Father? That God planned out what His Son would do, how He would accomplish it, and how he would end it. And that is more than enough reason to praise him. God started it all. Notice also that God chose to reveal himself. You got, you got God starting in verse 1, 
but he chose to reveal himself, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. What does that word spoke mean? It means to, to utter words or to speak, and the emphasis on, is on the act of speaking. This shows the personality of God. He used words to speak to his people. Not signs, not wonders, which are part of, part of that, but he used words to speak to his people. And God was not compelled to reveal himself at all. Notice, notice he doesn't say because of, of stuff that was going on on earth or because of this thing or that thing. No, God initiated it. He chose to communicate to us to reveal his person and will. Which just reminds me of, of, of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God initiated it. God was not compelled to speak to us, but yet He chose to communicate to us. And are we in awe this morning that God chose to reveal Himself? He didn't have to. He didn't. There was nothing in us, there was nothing in this world, this universe, that was sufficient reason enough for Him to reveal Him, His character, His person. Yet He did. God revealed Himself through His Word, through the prophets in the, in the old times, and we'll get to that next. But He chose to reveal Himself. Doesn't that scream to you, love? That God, so people ask today, well, well, how is God love? Well, God chose to reveal Himself, and that in itself is the definition of love, isn't it? That God chose to reveal Himself, to make known to us who He is. When you, when you for those of you who are married this morning, you, you fell in love, if I can use that term, with a person that you're married to because of who they, they were or they are. And they revealed that to you over time as you went through the process of dating and engagement. You found out more and more about them and, and you fell in love with them more and more. Why? Because they revealed themselves. They revealed their character and there were things that you found attractive and to be in love with. God chose to reveal Himself as an act of love. Notice also that God's former method of revelation was through His prophets who spoke in time past or the, the past in history to the fathers by the prophets. And the author here uses two words to construct a timeline for us. He uses the terms various times and in various ways. The, the idea is here uh, at different times and through different methods. So we can go back to the Old Testament and look at different ways that God revealed Himself in the Old Testament. And at different times. At the time of Abraham, God came to Abraham, right? In a voice. And spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, get out of here. Go to a different land that I will show you. God revealed Himself that way. We can go through the, the, the judges period of Israel's history and see that God revealed Himself through men and revealed His judgment as well as His his uh, rescue, His deliverance. We can go through the prophets and how God sent man after man to the nation of Israel and Judah, begging them, urging them, commanding them to repent from their sin. So God spoke different times, different ways, written, oral, to the fathers. What does the fathers mean? It means ancestors. Yeah. And for the author of Hebrews, he's... he's Thinking the Jewish people, the nation of Jews. 
So God spoke to His people, not any other audience, not the whole world. He spoke to His people by the prophets through them. That's, that's how God revealed Himself. And whether written or oral, God revealed His will to His people through His servants, the prophets. Daniel chapter 9, verse 6 kind of highlights this as, as Daniel is making his great confession through prayer to God. Daniel says, says this, Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and to our princes, to our fathers, and to all the people of the land. That's how God spoke. That's how God communicated through the prophets. But now it's different. Now it is different. God has now spoken through His Son to those who believe. Has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. What does that term last days mean? Some commentators go back and forth on this. Some say, well, it means the eschatological last days, you know, last days before Christ returns. Um, some say, you know, it's a, it's a different period of time uh, emphasized there. I, I think what we can say, that phrase refers to a different time other than the Old Testament. Because that's what the author of Hebrews is emphasizing in that first verse. The Old Testament was different. Now in these last days is a different time that God has chosen to reveal Himself. So the revelation of Christ essentially marks a new era in God's divine plan. He spoke through the law and through the prophets, through Moses, all those different ones in the past. Now He has spoken differently today. And He has spoken through His Son. That where the verb spoken here is past tense. It refers to the life and ministry of Jesus. It reminds us of the words that John says and writes in John chapter 12, verse 49, where Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. God revealed Himself through His Son. And notice to whom He revealed Himself. The Son was revealed to us. That word us refers to the entire Christian community. God revealed Him specifically to us. And then His revelation of God Himself is through His Son. Jesus came, revealed the Father to us in delivering God's Word. God chose to send His only Son to reveal His Word to us. It is no longer through mere men in their works that we hear the Word of God. His Son has spoken to us personally. Now, obviously, we're, we're some 2,000 years from, from hearing Jesus personally through audible listening. But we hear it through His Word. An illustration I, I might give about this personal revelation of God through His Son I would dare say that we would say a message, a message means more when it is delivered in person than in a letter or email. Wouldn't you agree? It means more when someone drops by to tell you something rather than write a note or send an email. It shows that they care, right? It shows that they're, they're interested in giving you this message, whether it be just, hey, I want you to know about this, this uh, big sale at the store or I wanted you to know about this uh, garage sale that's going on. It means a lot more than a, than a quick text message or an email. So God chose to give us a person to deliver His message. 
No longer is it the prophets or the law, different methods. It's now through His Son. So I have a question for you this morning. As a point of application, are you thankful for a personal God? Are you thankful for a personal God? A God who, who sent His Son to die on a cross, yes, but, but more importantly, to reveal Himself. Remember, remember what, what Philip says to Jesus as, as they're just conversing back and forth. Philip says, show us the Father, Jesus, and it, it will be sufficient for us. You remember Jesus' words? If you've seen Me, you've seen the what? You've seen the Father. You, you, Jesus is sufficient. And God revealed Himself through His Son. So when we see Jesus in word and in action in the Bible and we will see Him one day, we will see God. Doesn't that scream personality to you? Doesn't that scream to you that a God who, who died on the cross is personal? He's not this God who just sits up and just lets things pass by and just shows no interest whatsoever. God is divinely interested in your life so much so that He chose to reveal Himself ultimately in His Son. Are you thankful that God is personal? And not just someone who just doesn't care? We serve a personal God. Second reason to give thanks to God for Jesus Christ is that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. The author emphasizes two acts here of God in His plan. Number one, you can see there on, on the screen, God chose His Son to be the heir of all things, physical and spiritual. That word appointed there means to, to set or put in a new position bring about a new arrangement. So, so God put Christ in a new position. In the position that He is an heir or inheritor of all things. Someone who is an heir inherits something from their parents, right? You may be an heir in your parents' will. I don't know. Or have been. What does that mean? You, you inherit something from them. Whether it be uh, physical property. Whether it be financial gain. You inherit something. And you're therefore an heir. And while we think of inheritance as, as monetary and, and property language, Christ is an heir of all things. So the author is using that phrase, all things, to cover everything possible, whether spiritual or physical. Christ is the heir. They ultimately belong to Him. And I'll stop and say something there. Are you thankful this morning that Christ owns everything? That no matter what we gain or lose in this world belongs to Him anyway. I don't have to worry about when, when I lose finances or I lose my health or I lose something physical that belongs to me. It belongs to Him anyway. And why I, while I might not retain it personally, He's got it. He's in control. And I can rest in the fact that He is the heir of all things. Everything will ultimately culminate in Christ. God chose His Son to both fulfill and be the focus of His plan. I kind of likened it to, uh, uh, I think I've used this illustration a little bit before, but, but, but think of a coach 
strategizing for a game. What does he do? He creates a, what they call a game plan. And that game plan is designed whether corporally around a specific individual to win, to accomplish the goal. And the way you do that is create a game plan that fits the skill level of your player or players. Well, God is the ultimate coach, if you will. And His master strategy is Jesus. Jesus created the plan with Him and He carried it out and He is the end of that plan. Second all, look with me that God and His Son created the universe together. Through whom He also has made the worlds. The word made here is just a common word for to make or to do. But when God is the subject of this verb, it refers to something only God can do. We can go back to, to Genesis chapter 1 two, for an example of this. In the beginning, God created. Same word. Different language, but same word. It refers to something only God can do. And in the beginning, before time was, as creation began, Christ was there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. He created it, and it's for Him. Now what does this word worlds mean? It can be translated universe, and that might be what some of your translations have. It refers to every physical entity that God created, and that includes our planet. Let me give you some statistics that will help you to, to broaden your horizons a little bit. You probably know them. But about our physical universe, our, our, our galaxy to be specific. The Milky Way galaxy in which this planet is located is a barrel barred spiral galaxy about 100,000 light years across. The Milky Way itself, gets this, contains 200 billion stars. And, more, and enough dust and gas to make billions more. Think about that. 200 billion stars and there's enough dust and gas in our galaxy to make billions more. The Milky Way does not sit still, but is constantly rotating. And as such, its arms are moving through space, and the sun and solar system travel with them. The solar system, our solar system itself, travels at an average speed of 515,000 miles per hour. For you kilometer people, it's 820,000, okay? <laughs> Even at this rapid speed, okay? It, if, if half a million miles an hour isn't fast enough, the solar system would take about 230 million years to travel all the way around the Milky Way galaxy. Think about that. 230 million years to just make one rotation around the Milky Way galaxy. Isn't our God great for creating something that big? Now, the galaxies itself, the number of them, the best estimate from a 1999 study is that the number is about 125 billion galaxies. 2016, or excuse me, 2013, that number was up, up to 225 billion galaxies. And just a few years ago, in 2016, that number was up to 2 trillion galaxies. Mostly because they've, they've picked out 
through the telescopes and everything, uh, little composite galaxies that are smaller than ours, very small, and therefore they count them as a galaxy. Two trillion galaxies. And Jesus was there at the beginning, creating all of that. And since Jesus, with the Father, created this vast universe, and I just touched on our galaxy, there's millions, there's many more facts that are out there. Since Jesus, with the Father, created this vast universe, complex, does that not more than qualify him to help us small specks of dust? You see, we spend so much time worrying, right? We worry about this thing and that thing and, and this concern and that concern, and they're, they're legitimate. But if God, through his Son, and the Son created a vast universe that will take 230 million years to travel once around, can he help me with my problems, insignificant as they are? The God who spoke the words, worlds into existence by his mind. He didn't do anything, he just spoke. And it was there. I think that more than qualifies him to help me out with my problems and more than qualifies him to help me out with my sin problem. So let, let me ask you this. Are you all in on God's plan in Jesus? You see, be, the, the reason I say this is that many are the plans in the mind of a man, but is the purpose of the Lord that will stand, Proverbs 19.21. We can come up with thoughts and ideas and plans for our church and how we're going to reach this community and this community and these people and this people group. But are we forgetting that God's plan is ultimately in Jesus and that's who we need to be emphasizing? When you're talking to people about First Baptist Church and what we're doing here and praise God for what God is doing here, are you talking about our church or are you talking about Jesus? Because that is who ultimately we need to be talking about. Because God's plan is not for our church. Yes, God's going to work through our church, but his plan is Jesus. So as, as you're talking with family and friends and, and you're inviting them out, which I encourage you to do, make sure you're in on God's plan in Jesus, not God's plan for First Baptist Church. It's about Jesus. Not this church. Are you all in on his plan for, for culminating in Jesus? Thirdly, third reason, that Jesus is the divine sustainer and savior. Verse three, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author says several things here. Number one, Jesus is God, who being the brightness of his glory, the word being here is present tense. Jesus is, not was, not could be, not will be. He is the brightness. What does that word brightness mean? It means, means glory, means radiance, brilliance, reflection. The radiance that Jesus reflects is the glory of God. God's glory is seen through his Son in outward transformation. We can go back to Matthew chapter 17 and look at the, the Mount of Transfiguration experience when, when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John to be what he really is, the, the Son of God displayed in full brilliance. He was at that point the brightness of his glory showing it. 
Notice also he says the express image of his person. What does this mean? The word express image means exact representation. We get our word, English word character from this word. It means it was a word that was used to describe the imprint left by a seal on a surface. If you think back to the, the old ways of, of sealing documents, they had a wax seal, so they'd spread wax on the document, and normally the author of the document, whether it be a king or a governor, would take a ring or some kind of signet and press his seal on the wax, and what would come out was that exact imprint of the signet. So Jesus is the exact image of God. He's not a lesser God. He's not flawed in any way. He is God. And not only is he expressed image of God, he is the very God himself of his person. The word person means essential, essential basic structure of an entity. What, what is the author saying here? Jesus is God in every way. A definition might be a quote from an author that I read. What God is, the Son is. They share the same imprint of being. And are you thankful that Jesus is God? That he, he is God and He is more than sufficient when He died on the cross to pay for our sins. Why? Because He's the divine Son of God and only He could do it. Why? Because He's God. Notice also that Jesus sustains creation. Jesus sustains creation and upholding all things by the word of his power. What does that word upholding mean? It means to cause to continue in a state or condition. And what the author might be doing here is, is contrasting what was believed back in the ancient times. The ancient Greeks believed that their Greek god Atlas was said to hold up the world in the universe. He was supposed to be stationed outside in space and just holding it on his back. And he, by using that phrase, shows that that is complete folly. Jesus is the one holding things together. That phrase, all things, goes back to verse 2. So whether spiritual or physical, Jesus is holding up all things. How? By. That word by is to show that Jesus sustains creation. And notice how he does it by the word of his power. Not a physical action, not a, a mental thought. He does it with a word. It harkens to mind Revelation 19:15, talking about the power of God's word. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the wine press of the fierceness of the wrath of God. He, the word of his power. The word power means the potential for functioning in, a, in, in some way. Literally, it means just, it describes the activity, the ability to perform an activity. And it refers to someone in a position of power or force of a person's action. So in other words, Jesus, by his very power and ability, sustains the world. Through a word. Not, not, again, not a physical action through a word. We have a powerful Savior, don't we? To, to sustain the world with a word. You know, scientists have looked at, gone down to the, the very part of the atom, 
the very fundamental building blocks of our DNA and, and, and our, uh, uh, this creation. And they say something is holding it together. We don't know what. Well, I can tell you, Jesus is holding it together. And he's doing it by the word of his power. Notice also that Jesus is the authoritative Savior. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The word purge means to clean from an inward pollution. This is a moral cleansing. The verb had points to the past action with present day results. And what did Jesus purge? He purged sin. Now, the text here, uh, there's, a, there's a variant here. That, that possessive pronoun R is in some texts and is, is not in others. Basically, the idea is Jesus purged sin. And sin is a sinful act, a moral violation or transgression of divine command or the state of guilt that results from sin and wrongdoing. So he purged our sins. He made atonement for our sins, forgiving them before the Father. And, then, and when he did so, when he, we had done that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That, that word sat down means to take a seated position. And the word is active. It means that Jesus sat down and he is sitting down. He hasn't moved. Amen? God, God, God hasn't moved anywhere. He's still on the throne. He's still in control. And coupled with that phrase, the right hand of the majesty on high, it refers to authority and dignity. So what, what is the author saying here? He's saying that Christ paid the penalty for our sin and is now in the authoritative position at the right hand of God. A couple verses to give you just to highlight this authoritative position. Revelation 3.21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Do, do you know who that promise is to? That's to you and me. We will one day sit with him on his throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And Stephen, as he is, is being stoned for his faith, what does he see? Acts 7.56, And he said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now he's standing there, he's not sitting, but the emphasis is still the same. He's in a position of authority. So since everything in this world and the next is about Jesus, are you making everything in your life about him? I mean, he created the worlds. He's sustaining creation. He saved us. He is in an authoritative position. He is the Son of God. Everything is about him. Are you making your life about Him? In your conversations at work? In your lifestyle at home? In your vacation time? In, in your leisure time? In your, your, your travel time? Is your life about Jesus? Because He's the one sustaining it. And I'm not saying you have to mention Jesus every single time you talk to somebody. But when, when, when people look at your life, when you look at your life and you consider and you think about those different things, does your life reflect Jesus? Are you making everything about Him? Because He is the divine sustainer and Savior. 
last reason is that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now here in verse 4 is a, is a prelude to verses 5 through 14, which we'll get into next week. But the author makes his point that Jesus is greater than the angels for a couple reasons. Jesus is greater because of his position and having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That phrase, having become, means to, to come into a certain state or condition. This action happened in the past. So much means greater or obtaining a high status or rank. So he's greater than whom? Than the angels. And if you remember your grammar from all the way back in school, the word than creates a comparative, right? This is a comparative phrase. Jesus is greater than the angels. The illustration I might use is the Packers are better than the Vikings. All right? I had to put that one in there. I was so happy when I wrote that illustration. All right? For me, that is true, and it's true. We're better than you guys. Okay? Uh, That's the comparative statement. Okay? My wife's laughing, and then she's, you know what she's going to say when we get home? The Patriots are better than the Packers, and we'll have that argument. Okay? All right. So it's a comparative phrase. So what, what the author is doing is by comparison to the angels, Christ is greater. He is greater than the angels. His position is greater. Why? Because his position is greater because of his name. You know, when we think about greater than, we normally look at someone's qualities, right? Characteristics, right? But the author of Hebrews is saying, by his very name, Christ is greater. Not, not, not what he did, not who he is, which is all legitimate, by his name. He is greater. Notice what he says. As he has by inheritance attained a more excellent name than they. What does a person's name do? It invokes the identity of the one who is named. Jesus is Lord and Messiah, as, as the author of Hebrews will unfold. His very name is greater than the angels because it identifies his position and work. It's excellent. It means superior. It's inherited. He's come into possession of it. Now, some look at this and say, well, that means Jesus acquired something. No, but the emphasis here is that because of his work on the cross, he is Savior. He is Lord. He has always been, but now this is more evident and the name that he's inquired as Savior and Lord puts him in that excellent position. Jesus, by his work as Savior and Lord, inherited a greater name that puts him in a higher position than the angels. Not that he needed it. Because he already was. But more than sufficient reason, the author gives that his name is greater than the angels, and therefore he is greater than they it reminds us of Philippians 2, 9, and 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, think about this, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a day when every living thing will bow to Jesus. So the author of Hebrews is saying that having that in mind, he is pointing to his readers that Jesus is greater than the angels. And for those back then, and we'll get into this next week, 
who are struggling in their faith. Perhaps they're thinking about returning to the old ways, and, and some of those old ways was worshiping angels, was valuing, valuing them. He's saying they, he, Jesus is so much better, he's so much greater than the angels. So that leads me to ask this morning, do you value the name of Jesus? Again, in, in your work, in your life, in your relationship with your spouse, are you putting a high priority on the name of Jesus? Not that you're saying it all the time, but then when you do talk about him, you do talk about him with reverence and awe. Today, unfortunately, the name of Jesus has become a byword. It's become a curse word. His name is not valued as it should be, but there is coming a day where it will be, so let's do it now. As we think about worshiping him, let's value his name now so that when I speak about him, I speak about him with reverence and awe, and I remember who he is and his position, and I act accordingly. Let's reverence the name. Let's value his name now. Because one day everyone will do it, regardless of if they want to or not. So let's practice that now, valuing his name before all men. Thank yous and thank you notes are necessary. And sometimes they're a necessary evil. Okay? They're good. But now so much more for the believer in Jesus Christ. God has provided so much to be thankful for in his son. The four reasons I gave for you. Jesus is God's ultimate revelation. He's the pinnacle of God revealed. He is the fulfillment of God's plan. He started it. He initiated it. He carried it out. He is the fulfillment of it. He is the divine sustainer and savior. He is God. He sustains our universe. And he saved our soul. He is greater than the angels. We'll talk about that more next week. He is so much better by his very name. So let us be thankful for Jesus this week and into eternity when we see him face to face.